and welcome to Lane Time Chat, episode 28. It's the first time I've done one of these without David and also one of the first times I have remembered to put into uh, what I'm looking at, what episode number it is. But yeah, today's episode or this month's episode really um, is going to be different from others because it's just going to be me and I'm going to be talking about a topic that is very personal to me, but that I know um, other people may understand and share with me. And so today's episode, the title explains it all here, Art and Anxiety, uh, Conlinging Through Imposter Syndrome. So that is the topic of the day. So conlinging is one of my happy places. I mean, I love to, to create, whether I'm crafting with my hands, baking treats in the kitchen, drawing little animals on my iPad, or putting words together on the page. I love creating and having outlets for creative expression. I also love linguistics. Languages fascinate me and my analytic brain has so much fun diving into patterns that are definitely there, but also in constant fluctuation. So it always feels like there's some sort of diversity going on. Uh, so of course I love conlinging where creativity and linguistics meet in the most amazing kind of art. And yet the fun of it all, the beauty of it all can sometimes get lost in the details when I'm actually conlinging. And three of my biggest hurdles are imposter syndrome, overthinking, and not having someone else in charge of the process. So uh, in today's episode, I'm gonna talk first through those hurdles, and then I'm gonna shift gears and talk about the personal conlang project that I'm working on right now. So the reason I'm exploring this topic is because I know I'm not alone. And I really hope that by talking more openly about my own struggles, it might help someone else who is feeling some or all of what I'm feeling. So first up, imposter syndrome. So struggling with imposter syndrome means that I have difficulty seeing myself the same way that other people see me and my work. Uh, looking in on my life, um, people probably say that I've done all the things I needed to do to be in the place I am today. Um, you know, I have a PhD in linguistics, which means other people have, uh, if professionals have validated that I've done the things I need to, to do to be qualified to talk about language and linguistics. Um, I've, you know, earned the, the full professor title at a university, which means colleagues and administrators validated my work as they promoted and tenured me twice. Other people, people I trust say I'm doing good things, great things even, which is why I've won awards and why I'm in a position where people are willing to pay me to do something I love. So from the outside, it looks like I have everything together and am a powerhouse. And I know because people have literally said that to me. But imposter syndrome creates a false sense of inadequacy that no amount of external accomplishments or validation can cure. So all those things that I just mentioned, none of them are needed to, to be a conlanger. And having them doesn't magically provide confidence for a person struggling with imposter syndrome, which is why I can have all the qualifications, but still feel like it's not enough. And that's because on the inside, I feel small. I feel like people must not be able to see the real me if they think that I'm doing great. I feel like they must not be able to see how much better all these other people are doing the things that I do. And I feel like at any moment, it all could you know, burst and come crashing down when they realize I don't actually belong. 
So it's like I have the chorus of uh, Radiohead song Creep playing on um, repeat in my mind. Uh, and if you don't know that, here it is, but I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. Um, that, that is the chorus of that song. And like, it's hard for me to read the lines without singing, but also my singing voice leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, but that it, every time I hear that, I'm like, I get it. I get it. It isn't that I think I'm a creep creep. It's more like I'm a creeper who has snuck into something better than I deserve. So not feeling like I belong, not feeling like I'm good enough to be where I am and doing, uh, you know, what I do leads or feeds rather into the second hurdle, uh, which is anxiety and overthinking. Um, I overthink everything. I question everything, every little decision. And then I judge everything I do um, very harshly, more so than anyone else does, I think. And I'm talking about everything from work and professional things to, you know, personal life situations. It's why I've never mastered social media and probably never will. I stress out so much about what I say and how I should say it that I end up stalling and usually not doing anything. Most people never see this struggle because I am very good at wearing my public mask. I may be wrong about this, but I have a feeling that a lot of empaths and introverts um, are adept at putting on a public face to make it through social interactions without being too awkward or aloof. And I'm definitely both. I don't want other people to see that I'm almost constantly running circles around myself in my head as I try to make sure I see all the flaws of what I, I'm doing and saying before other people do. So it's like a classic duck on water situation uh, when I'm in public where you know other people see a much more composed side of me while my mind is in a total whirlwind. So my constant overthinking creates a great deal of anxiety and a difficult working situation. But what makes it even worse is that third hurdle that I don't have anyone else to answer to uh, when I am creating for myself. So if someone else gives me a deadline, I meet it. I make sure of it. It gives me an end date to a project that guarantees that I have to you know, stop questioning all my decisions by a particular time. The work has to be done, so it will get done. Not having a deadline means I just keep going in the mental warfare on myself. Not only is there no end point for a personal project, but there are also no external goals that other people have set for me to meet other than to make myself happy with my work. And that means I get stuck in a loop of making decisions followed by questioning them, followed by changing the initial decisions, followed by more questioning. It's a struggle. And it's also why so many creative projects I've started that mean a lot to me uh, never get finished because it's just stuck in that loop. But like I said at the beginning, conlanging is one of my happy places. Even as I question what I'm doing and doubting that my work is good enough, I still love creating and language and linguistics, and I still love the art of what I'm doing. So I have these brave moments where I come up with an idea for a conlang that's solid enough for me to actually pursue it. And my personal conlang project that I'm working on right now uh, was born out of such a moment. So I actually know the precise moment I decided I wanted to start a new conlang for myself because I journaled about it. And so I'm able to see it was August 4th, 2019. And I was really struggling at the time. 
and you know for some good reasons uh and so you know looking at the world around me trump was president um and for me his presidency felt like a four-year term of warfare on everything decent and hopeful and good not to say that it's over and better now that he's not president but it really shook things up in a way that that made it all really not great at that time it felt like so many people were just like absolutely filled with rage and hate and they came out into the open and showed you know just how ugly humanity can be and on that day in particular there had been another mass shooting um and that just kind of Ugh, drove the spike in. So looking at the larger world outside my home uh, sat me of hope for a better tomorrow. Inside my house, it wasn't going much better. I had survived one of the worst academic years of my life that was filled with administrative gaslighting and resulted in major upheaval in my department and actually landed me in a totally different department. Uh, in early August, I was getting ready to start a new year, but didn't feel hopeful about it. And then my marriage, which had been crumbling for at least three years by that point, was in shambles and creating a toxic space for me. So that day, it all felt so pointless. Everything felt awful. And as I sat there feeling upset and down and hopeless, a song floated into my head. And that's John Lennon's Imagine. I actually wrote the lyrics down on my journal page, and I'm going to give them here too, in case you don't know the particular song. Uh, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. That song sparked a tiny bit of hope for me in a moment that had otherwise been filled with despair. And it also sparked an idea. What if I imagined a community of humans that did just that, a community of humans that lived as one, that cared for the whole, that saw beauty in their world. And so I set an attention to create a language of beauty, a language whose very words make me find joy in the little things around me, a language full of whimsy and delight, a language just for me, a language to help me recapture my joie de lire. And that is, of course, where the name also comes from, Joati. By August 2019, I had finished working with David. Um, on Miniche for uh, Motherland Fort Salem. And working with David had introduced me to new ways of conlanging and thinking about the process of conlanging that I was excited to explore on my own. Um, I was specifically, um, I was specifically inspired to evolve a language from protoforms, which was something I hadn't attempted um, on my own before, and to incorporate noun classes into the language. So I set to work, I got out a special notebook just for the project. I made notes on its grid pages with my new black wing pencil. I made outlines for some evolutionary stages of the language and had ideas for root words that I jotted down. And then my brain took over. I started seeing the cracks in my outlines and plans and erased some notes in favor for others, but then wondered if the original plan hadn't been better after all. And life also took over. It was August. 
I was starting a new semester. I had work I needed to finish, which included, you know, prepping for classes and also putting together a huge binder for my bid for full professor. So I closed my notebook and returned it to its shelf in my office and didn't look at it again for nearly two years. During those two years, life upheaved me. I mean, it upheaved all of us with COVID, but on top of living in a pandemic world, um, I went through major changes in my personal life um, that included divorce, personal grief, three cross-country moves, the start of a new relationship and a change in careers. I needed to find my ground again as everything around me was in motion and unsettled. So I reached for that Jawadi notebook and very, very slowly started writing down more solid ideas for the language. And so this is a brief introduction to what I have so far. Um, so first and foremost, they are human speakers. So Jawadi speakers are humans who live in a place that is essentially Southern Missouri, um, a place I chose specifically because it's where I grew up. It's what I think of first when I hear the word home. And so they live on earth, but in an alternate reality where humans are better and kinder. They live in dense forested areas with a lot of rivers and creeks and caves, and they experience four defined seasons with hot summers, beautiful falls, snowy winters, and stormy springs. Jwadi as a language is full of the sounds that I most enjoy hearing and producing. As anyone who watches Langtime Studio knows, I struggle with pronouncing a lot of sounds accurately and consistently, and I wanted this language to be one I could pronounce. Instead of walking through what I've outlined so far in the sound features though, I wanna focus on what I'm currently most proud of, which is how I'm organizing and documenting features of the language and stages of its development. So first I organized the sound changes into different stages of language development, aligning sound shifts with grammatical shifts. And so for instance, the first stage of development is when uh, noun class prefixes and number suffixes were grammaticalized as inflections. Um, and also some early compounds were formed. And then uh, the second stage is when case marking became grammaticalized and early derivations started appearing. And so like right now I'm at four stages of development, again, aligning, these are the, the sound shifts that happen during this period, but also what happens during this period are these grammar things. Um, so specifically demarcating the sound changes into, this, uh, into those stages has made it so I know how to best combine forms at their boundaries to match how the language would have sounded um, you know, at that time and how it was shifting at the same time. When it came to compiling the dictionary, I came up with some ideas I rather like. As you see here, I'm quite proud of my dictionary. I have broken down the basic roots that I um, am creating for the language into semantic categories to better track what roots I have and how I want them organized into a full proto vocabulary system. And so I have a table in my dictionary document to show how many roots I've created for each category. Here's what I have um, so far. So this is a screenshot from a page in the dictionary. And well, if you're, if you're watching the video, you'll see it. Or if you're looking at the slideshow, you'll see it. Um, if not, I'm gonna tell you, I have a table where I've got these uh, semantic categories like appearance, body terms, a category by the way of like how to categorize things and put them into lumps, 
communication, community, construction, emotion, fauna, flora, insects, interaction, meals, motion, structure, uh, terrain, time, tool, and weather. And so um, those are, are my categories that I have so far. That's not to say that'll be all the categories I have by the end, but that's what I have so far. And then alongside each semantic category, I list how many roots there are already developed. So right now I have the most in, in body terms. I have 27 of those. Uh, everything else is much lower. And for any that are set at zero, what that means is that I have lists of words that I want to make as roots. I just haven't created the forms for them yet. After the table in my document, each of these categories um, is then broken down into alphabetized lists of roots with their basic semantic meaning. So for instance, um, here is the, the start of the body terms list, the, the one that has 27. Um, the start of that, I've got, uh, you know, just categorized under body terms. And then again, in alphabetical order, you know, asa, which is the inside of the mouth. Um, well, mouth, but specifically the inside part. Af is the protoform of breath, aiza for body, and so on. And so, like I said, just keeping, keeping track like that, these lists help me keep track of what I've created um, and what the protoforms look like within each category, which in turn, um, you know, helps me make sure I don't accidentally have all the roots within a single semantic category, starting with the same sounds like, oh my gosh, all my body parts start with an M. How did that happen? Uh, and then within the dictionary itself, I follow the method that David introduced me to. So where the um, Jwadi entries are organized into proto-root forms uh, to show how the roots are expanded into noun classes. So the entries themselves um, follow the basic structure that David uses. And now that we both use, you know, in Langtime Studio languages, but then I added in some extra features. So for example, um, what I'm showing right now in the, the slideshow is the, the entry for the protoform Aush, um, that is the protoform. So inside that entry, there are going to be some really standard things that, you know, watching Lane Time Studio, you've probably come to, to know and expect. Um, so, you know, like listing the modern form. And so you see that the proto root at top becomes osh in the modern form. It's got, you know, IPA, it's got uh, lexical categories. Within this one entry, there are four different Shwadi words, osh, dimosh, iposh, and zosh. Um, all of them are nouns. Uh, after each noun, I've indicated what, uh, you know, what noun class it belongs to. Um, and so here, osh means wind and is a sky noun. Uh, dumosh means breeze and is a night noun. Iposh is um, freezing wind or biting wind, like wind capable of causing frostbite. Um, and that is an ice noun. And then zosh is, um, it means smoke and it is a fire noun. And so those are the, the four labels there. Um, and then I also use David's handy, you know, register politeness indicator um, for each portion of the entry. And so all of them have zeros and curly brackets, which means they're standard words uh, that could appear across any register, um, you know, can be used in any company kind of thing. But if you're looking at the screen, then you may have noticed I have a couple of extra features that I added, including a proto at this stage form. 
And so in stage one, in its you know most beginning roots, uh, in its proto form, the root is aush, a u, and then the esh. Um, but by stage two, so again, I demarcated those those stages at the beginning of stage two, the form has shifted to osh. Um, and so that au diphthong became o during the, the first set of sound changes. As of right now, that stage two form matches the modern form of the word. So I don't provide any other forms. It's, you know, they're all gonna be osh from there on out. But again, that helps me know that, um, you know, for instance, if this is coming together with a prefix in stage one, I need to remember that its form is actually aush, which, um, you know, having that vowel there could shift how it interacts with a prefix. However, by the time we get to stage two, any prefixes that get added are being added in front of an O, not a diphthong, not an A. It's that form is gone by now. And so that, you know, again, helps me keep track of that. Um, another thing that I have done is that I, for the, the most basic meaning of that protoform, so for the, the roots basic meaning, I give the semantic category in um, Gimets. And so, or Gimes, I don't really know, it's French word, but it's the fancy quotation marks with the little, little double angle brackets. Um, for some reason, I've always thought that they looked really cool. So I love using them in formatting when I'm able. I've used them here to give uh, in small caps, the semantic category. And so osh, which is the you know modern form of that basic root, meaning wind is the basic one and it belongs to the weather semantic category. Um, and of course, the way that I've done the semantic categories is just for my own brain, um, just the way I want this particular language to be organized, it could potentially belong to a completely different semantic category, um, you know, in a different kind of system or a different way to think about the words. Um, so, oh, I forgot as I slide through the presentation now, um, I forgot that I put circles around each feature so that way I can show what I'm talking about. Um, and so I'm catching up now in my presentation to where I am talking wise. Uh, but for any protoform that shifts phonological shape in one stage of the language, but not another, I only list the forms that differ in that headword entry. And so, for example, another root is faisa. Um, in stage two, that protoform has shifted and now looks like faisa. Um, and then in stage two and three, there are no additional changes that occur to this root. So the sound changes that happen, you know, during that time just don't apply to this particular root. Um, however, then when we hit as it goes into stage four, um, it is now faisa. Uh, instead of faisa, it's become faisa. Um, and that's its modern form. And so, yes, I right now have killed the central vowel schwa. I think David is rubbing off on me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that schwa became an ah um, at the end. And so um, those are some things that, again, helping me keep track of where it is. I'm like double and triple marking some of this information. Um, this particular entry is of a verb. And so this verb um, is included in the interaction. And so for me, what I mean by interaction semantic category is um, the way that the speakers interact with items and objects. Um, and potentially even with other people, um, but it, it indicates a sort of interaction. And this particular verb means to put or to place something. Um, and so that is phasa. Um, another form that came out of this root, um, came out of the same one, is eza, uh, which is a postposition, meaning at, around, or near. 
and then it's cross, you know, cross uh, reference to another entry. Um, and I'll, I'll mention that again in a moment. Um, on the English side of the dictionary, I indicate um, the basic root associated with each entry, so I know where to find its full information. So, you know, for instance, here's the opening of my current A list, where my A words in English that I have so far are arm, ant, hill, around, and at. So those are four words, um, you know, four English words that I have in my language right now. And then, you know, they're followed by, I, I say, you know, arm and anthill are both nouns. And in English, around and at are both prepositions. In Jwadi, they will be postpositions. Uh, but then after each one where I give the Jwadi word, so like arm is je, um, I then also follow that in parentheses with the root that you would need to go to, the entry that you would need to go to to actually find arm, uh, to actually find the listing je. And this one, you would have to go to die. And so you have to go to the D's to find the entry, uh, which is a, this how this is helpful. So it's super helpful for me to know which root is associated with which modern form. Um, even more helpful, I could have guessed that J came from DI just knowing, um, you know, the, the way that my language works. Uh, but then some other ones, uh, it's incredibly even more helpful to see those entries, uh, the, the protoforms, because for instance, Ant Hill is Mavol in the modern form. Um, but if you want to look at its full entry, you have to go to the, the proto root faul. So F-A-U-L became uh, mevol because it's got a class prefix. So that may is a, a prefix marker and it's not actually part of the root. And then um, because it's got that prefix, it, it actually shifted that F to a V um, because of its environment. And so again, super helpful for me because I want to know where to find it. And um, it makes it easier to cross-reference information, you know, as I'm trying to, to figure out where the full entry is. So the roots um, that they have, every root I have um, categorized as belonging to a natural noun class. Um, and I've had a lot of fun working with these noun classes, by the way. Um, I had never really done a noun class language until Maniche. And I loved it so much. I was like, I need to do this again. And so um, every nominal root belongs to a natural noun class and is unmarked when it's used in that meaning. And then semantic extensions um, are indicated through the addition of class markers um, that are marked with a noun class prefix. However, if a noun, um, or sorry, a noun can be marked with its natural class prefix to shift the meaning from its basic root. And so, for example, yanu is a nominal root and it means bone and it belongs to the stone class. It just naturally belongs to the stone class. It doesn't carry the kha, uh, stone class marker, that prefix. Um, you don't see it there in the word. However, if you do use kha, that stone class marker with yanu, you get krayanu, which is a word in the language, but it means fossil. It still belongs to stone class, but being explicitly marked by that prefix actually gives it a different meaning. And so I've got some examples like this already built in, and I'm looking forward to figuring out ways to incorporate more like it. Um, other prefixes, so yanu as a root can take other noun class prefixes for different meanings, such as megyanu, uh, which means marrow and is a dirt class noun. So another example, uh, the root kra itself 
means stone and is of course a stone class noun. That root can take other noun uh, class prefixes to shift its meaning. And so like chakra is a malleable metal and is a grass class noun. Ikra is um, stalactite or stalagmite and is an ice class noun. And rokra is gemstone, lode, or mica and is a day class noun. And so altogether, Jwadi has 11 noun classes, each of which has a prefix associated with it, um, serving as its class mar uh, marker. And these are largely based on look and feel. So for example, um, grass nouns tend to be solids that are bendy and malleable, so you can bend them without breaking them. Um, stone class nouns are also solid, but they crack, they can break. Um, e, or sorry, E is the prefix for ice class nouns, but ice classes, um, it's associated again with solids, but specifically, you know, cold solids or things that can melt, things like that. Um, and then day class nouns uh, tend to be associated with um, things that are bright or warm or even hot. Um, and so those are just some of the different associations. Um, and not all associations are perfect, um, you know, as all noun classes are. Sometimes it makes more sense than others why a noun belongs to one class over another. And of course, over time, it's going to lose some of that connection so that you end up getting nouns belonging to classes that just kind of make you go, huh? Why does it go there? And so again, these are all things I'm looking forward to playing with as I continue making more nouns. Um, Jwadi also has five plural suffixes that categorize nouns into classes uh, based on how they're perceived in the plural. And so the semantic roots of the plural suffixes demonstrate those perceptions. So one suffix comes from a root meaning group in the collective animate sense. Um, and so like groups of people or, um, you know, groups of animals, things like that, uh, that plural usually only goes on animate nouns. Uh, another plural suffix comes from a root meaning mound or hill. And so, you know, this is used to refer to nouns that are typically found in piles in the plural. Uh, the third one is my generic one, which also means group or set, but this is in the inanimate generic sense, like just things clumped together. The fourth one comes from the word or the root meaning well, as in um, like a water well. And this is used for nouns that uh, when they're pluralized, uh, it, the association is that it expands to fill a space rather than having individual um, units that it actually kind of fills the space as more there, it's like the whole thing gets larger. And then finally, the fifth one um, comes from a root meaning ivy. Um, and that's because it reflects um, the metaphor that they have in the language that I put in the language that time is like a plant or a tree and that it grows vertically over time. And so that is used for like a lot of um, abstract nouns. Uh, a lot of them end up taking the ivy suffix. So another feature of Jwadi is that speakers can potentially choose to make distinctions based on, you know, the, the chosen plural form. So for instance, um, anilu is cloud belonging to a sky class noun. It actually breaks down into the sky prefix an, and then the root ilu meaning down as in like feathery down. So it's like feathery down you find in the sky. Uh, the typical plural for this word is anilui, 
uh, and that's the well version of plural. And it indicates that clouds are uh, generally perceived as growing and filling a space as they multiply, such as the sky. However, if a speaker wants to indicate that there are multiple distinct clouds in the sky, like it's not filling the sky, it's just, oh, I see three clouds in the sky um, and they are all separate from each other. Uh, they can actually use the form aniluku, uh, which means clouds, and it comes from that you know, generic group set plural. Or again, that indicates that the, the multiple clouds you're seeing are distinct shapes or units in the sky. As a side note, there's actually an older root in Zhuadi that means cloud, which in its modern form appears as ma, um, also belonging to the sky class. But that root was reinterpreted to specifically refer to um, clouds that require taking note, such as a dark um, cloud or a storm bearing cloud. So the newer word anilu uh, refers to any any cloud really, but you know, more specifically a non-threatening cloud like white fluffy clouds uh, would be referred to as anilu uh, versus ma would be again like those dark clouds because they're in a, in a place like Missouri, tornado kind of clouds, you know, thunderstorm clouds, those clouds where it's like, no, you need to, you need to be talking about them for good reason. And so that's what that older root that just meant cloud was reinterpreted to mean. So while noun class and number affixes are among the oldest forms, noun cases are a later development in the language. Uh, and so what happened was verbs grammaticalized as postpositions first, and then a handful of those further grammaticalized as case markers. So they appear after any plural suffixes on the root. Because these forms are later, they phonologically um, interact with stems in a different way uh, than the other inflections do. I'm still working on the sound changes and how I want um, all these cases to really appear in the modern form. But here is what I have right now. So it's like a potential preview of where I might be going. It may stay this way. I may shift some of these forms, um, but I've got here an inflection uh, table, if you will, uh, for the root um, meaning person. And so the proto form is paila. Uh, where you have P schwa, I, L schwa, that was the, the older form. And so right now it's, it's mom, nominative singular form in the modern form is Pela. So um, that's its current form. But then in accusative, we have Pelam, genitive Pelto, uh, dative and locative are Pelas, and instrumental Peljo. And then in the plural side, we have Pel. Oh, just a second, I gotta make sure I get the, the stress right. Pelia. Uh, and then in the accusative, peliam, genitive, peliato, uh, dative locative, pelies, and instrumental, peliato. And so those are the forms that I have right now. Um, you can see that uh, for the most part, for instance, the accusative is just the suffix m, um, at least in these examples. Uh, genitive is to, dative instrumental, or dative locative rather, shows up as either just a Z or an EZ, uh, and then instrumental shows up as Jo. The dative and locative forms, um, I told you I'd come back to this note. If you recall that postposition EZA is cross-referenced with another root form, um, and that's because two forms, FEZA and HEZA, ended up um, kind of overlapping in their development. And so the dative um, comes from a different verb form, meaning to give, where the locative comes from a verb form, meaning to put or to place. But over time, those forms overlapped 
And so now the dative and locative cases look the same. So I'm still in nouns. I haven't made it to the wonders of the verb yet, uh, but I definitely have some plans and I am, I am excited to see where I go once I hit that. So these are all things that I'm happy with and proud of, at least for right now, uh, but my hurdles are definitely still there. Um, I keep working through them one conlang decision at a time. That's not to say every working day on the language is a good one. Some days all I do in Chwadi is change a single sound of a single root only to change it back again. I have those days. And yet on the good days, I can see, um, you know, that I like what I've started, especially when I see entries that I've forgotten about and I'm like, ooh, have fun. Uh, and so those moments remind me to try to step out of my own way as I continue creating. So I conlang to create moments of joy in between moments of self-doubt. Uh, in the end, it's beautiful to see it all coming together, uh, but lingering self-doubt means I struggle with sharing my work with others. It also means that this topic, this today's podcast, uh, has been really difficult for me to open up about. And if you are like me and experience some of the same hurdles, I hope you can also find the joy in between the not so good moments. And I hope you too can continue to create and see the beauty in what you've created. Uh, at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you find happiness in what you're doing and in what you've done. As I was trying to figure out a good way to wrap this up, I recalled a list of five rules of conlanging that I created for a project um, that I had started working on. And sharing them here just really feels like a fitting way to, to conclude this, this talk, this chat. Um, and so first, like the, the opening part for my conlanging rules, it just says like at the top of the page, conlanging rules, and then in parentheses below it, Heck yeah, it does. So you can see the tenor of what I'm about to go into. It was written from completely different style because this was again for a completely different thing. Uh, but I think it's good that I keep reviewing what I have said are the five rules of conlanging because I need to remember them myself. Rule number one is have fun. Language is fun. Constructing your very own language is fun to the max. Conlinging is challenging though, and it can be oh so tempting to compare your work to someone else's or your knowledge of linguistics or languages to someone else's. But for the love of all that is grammar, please don't do that. Keep the focus on your growth and your process and enjoy every second of it. So that's rule one. Rule two actually had to be broken into two parts. Two A is be choosy when it comes to the features you incorporate. There are so many freaking cool features out there that languages have, but not all of them play well together in a single language. You might wanna keep a running list of cool features you find, but didn't include in your current project to remember for future conlang projects. Rule 2B is don't worry about making every decision a creative one. Some decisions are gonna be more fun than others because you may have had a brilliant idea for a compound or source for an inflection but not every decision will end up feeling brilliant. And that is not only okay, but it's actually necessary for making a language that reads and resolves uh, more naturally. There is a reason after all uh, that there are commonalities among linguistic features of languages that are totally unrelated to each other. And that's because there are just some 
language decisions that kind of feel more natural. And that means it's not necessarily creative or new. It's just, it feels good. Rule number three is remember that your conlang is yours. You get to decide what you want to do with it and how you want it to look and sound. Asking people for advice and feedback is a wonderful way to grow as an artist, one I highly recommend. But remember that at the end of the day, it's your conlang and your art. Rule number four is don't be afraid to revise, but recognize when a revision will require a major language overhaul and think through that decision very carefully. Very rarely do conlingers look at any of their languages and say, it's perfection. Like all artists, we tend to see things we wish we would have done differently. Embrace the growth and use newfound knowledge to make future conling decisions even better. And then finally, rule number five is remember that no language is perfect or complete. All languages have idiosyncrasies and quirks. All languages have irregularities and all living languages continuously grow and change with no end point to the growth. No conlang will ever be complete, but it can reach a stage where you say that's enough for what I needed for this project. Yes, I realize I'm better at giving advice on this topic than I am at following my own advice some days. But uh, whatever struggles you face in your conlang journey, I hope you know you're not alone. And I hope you're able to find your own joy and happiness in conlanging. And so until next time, stay grammar and have fun with your conlang journey.